Today's episode of Accounting for Us is part one of a two-part series with Dr. Aisha Terry discussing two truths and a lie, the coronavirus and black people. Good afternoon, Dr. Perry. Good afternoon. Um, I want to take some time to basically do some, some validation, if you will. I know with the COVID virus, there's a lot of myths and there's a lot of things that circulate through our community. And you've been the doctor that you are and you've been insightful. I figured you'd be an excellent guest to help us debunk the myths from the facts. But before we get into that, I would like to start with you, your background, your journey. Um, Dr. Terry today, like how, how did that happen? Talk about where you grew up and where you went to school and all of those fun facts. Absolutely. Well, first, again, I really appreciate the opportunity to, to share. I appreciate all of the work of NABA and, uh, you know, its mission. And so appreciate the opportunity definitely to be here and to share on this really important topic. Um, so I am Dr. Asia Terry, uh, born and raised in North Carolina, specifically Goldsboro, North Carolina, so Eastern North Carolina. Um, and, you know, I'm actually the first physician in my family. So I was, uh, again, the first physician, but my mother actually was a nursing professor. Um, and so I think that, I know that actually her influence obviously played a big part in my decision to go into medicine. Um, I uh, knew I wanted to be a physician when I was about 15 years old. And uh, again, I think a lot of it just had to do with always being on the coattails of my mom and seeing her help others relative to their health and doing blood pressure clinics at church and the like. And um, it just was something that was ingrained into me, I believe, at a really young age. Um, somehow I always knew I wanted to be a physician and, and not a nurse. Um, wanted to, I guess, spend more dollars on schooling and spend more time in school. Um, so I did that and actually ended up spending about 11 years of formal training uh, to get to where I am today in terms of practicing medicine. Um, I went to Duke University undergrad um, in Durham, and from there I studied uh, pre-med and biology and chemistry, I also minored in Spanish. Then went on to UNC Chapel Hill School of Medicine where I got my MD degree. And so um, to be clear, I'm a Duke fan. Um, I do appreciate the darker shade of blue rather than Carolina blue, but I owed Duke enough money. It was time to move on. Um, and after getting my medical degree, I, I chose to go into emergency medicine as my specialty of choice. Um, I wanted to make sure that after training to be an emergency physician, I came out very well prepared to take care of whatever rolled through the door in the emergency department and decided to travel up the road to Baltimore, Maryland to train in emergency medicine. I figured at that time that there may have been a few more emergencies or certainly traumas um, in Baltimore uh, compared to Chapel Hill. So came up to Baltimore, spent three years in Baltimore, Maryland at the University of Maryland Medical Center, Shock Trauma Center, training in emergency medicine. Um, and then from there began to practice clinically, taking care of patients in the emergency department, but also teaching in the University of Maryland School of Medicine, um, teaching future physicians uh, in terms of how to take care of patients, how to take a physical exam and do um, take a history and the like. Um, and then at some point after finishing up my residency training, I, I wanted to uh, make sure that I had the skill set necessary to not just have impact at the bedside clinically with patients, but to have a broader impact um, in terms of public health and policy. Um, I just realized that many issues in healthcare are going to be resolved through policy and, and through regulation. Um, you know, I think that a lot of behavior change is incited through policy. 
And I think that public health plays a huge role uh, in terms of health outcomes. And so from that point, I decided to go back to school. I got my master's of public health degree from Columbia University. Um, and, and at that point, transitioned from Baltimore down to D.C., where, again, it was an, really an intentional pivot towards doing work specifically in the area of health policy and public health. And I knew that Washington, D.C., of course, is the mecca of policy, all things policy and certainly federal government related issues. So I joined George Washington University uh, Department of Emergency Medicine in 2012 and joined as the director of the Health Policy Fellowship at GW. Um, and from there have continued to teach not just medical students in terms of their clinical practice, uh, but also teaching residents and teaching fellows about health policy and how we can intersect our clinical practice with uh, policy and measures and rules and regulations um, to really make the clinical practice that we perform at the bedside work for the masses. Um, and so that's where I find myself now in DC, still doing health policy work, still teaching and still certainly taking care of patients in the emergency department. Um, along the way, I got really involved with advocacy work at the national level. Um, I actually was president of the Emergency Medicine Residents Association in 2005 to 2008 when I was a resident. Um, and then from there, continue to be really heavily involved with national work relative to emergency medicine. Um, and most recently, in 2017, was elected to the Board of Directors for the American College of Emergency Physicians, which is the umbrella organization for the specialty of emergency medicine, having about 40,000 members um, and focusing, again, on all things advocacy uh, for emergency physicians, as well as emergency care, and also for, obviously, our emergency patients. And, and really proud to say that I'm actually the first African-American female member of the Board of Directors for ASEP. Uh, and of course, it's been a, a true pleasure in that capacity, again, to have the opportunity to um, affect change on a bit of a larger scale nationally. So that's a little bit about my professional background. <laughs> you mentioned policy. As an individual, why do I care about policy? Why is that important to me as an individual as it relates to healthcare? And the system. So I think that policy can serve as an equalizer. Policy can serve as a means to equity. And so the reason why you as an individual should care about policy uh, is because it will allow some standardization in the delivery of healthcare to ensure that what you are receiving in terms of maintaining your health, your life, and your happiness, if you will, in terms of your health, uh, may largely depend on the policy of the land. So, for example, the Affordable Care Act, uh, we know was huge legislation um, that ensured that all Americans would have access to health care. That is policy. That is not, it didn't just ensure access to health care in terms of having health insurance, but it also ensured access to preventive services and ensured access to make sure that if you happen to have a pre-existing condition, you're not penalized from that and you're not uh, kept from being served just because you happen to have hypertension or diabetes, um, which of course is not fair. It's not equitable. Um, and so that's why you should care, certainly about policy, because in many ways, it's an equalizer that ensures that there is standardization in terms of the delivery of health care uh, in an equitable manner. So do you feel, from an African-American perspective, do you feel that our community has directly been impacted by, I'm going to assume, the lack of diversity when it comes to individuals that are making the policies as it relates to healthcare? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, I think that there is certainly a lack of diversity in leadership when it comes to policymakers. There's a lack of diversity in leadership when it comes to even healthcare providers. Um, and when there's a lack of diversity at those levels, it certainly trickles down in terms of influencing then what happens 
uh, in the way of policy making, and that policy making obviously affects individual lives. And so uh, we know that in healthcare, for example, studies have shown that patients who are taken care of by diverse healthcare providers, diverse physicians, um, actually do better in terms of satisfaction and in terms of their compliance with the, the medical plan um, and, and also in terms of their outcomes. We also know that when there's a diversity of providers in terms of physicians, they're more likely to work in underserved areas and populations to ensure that there's access to care for everybody. So without a doubt, diversity in terms of workforce and policymakers and physicians is really important to ensure that, again, there is an equitable mindset in charge. Um, and that's not to say that you have to be uh, from an underrepresented race uh, to have a, a, an equitable mindset. Um, but it is to say that there is uh, some value in having your own personal experience with diversity um, and with the effects of inequity uh, and how that can translate into real change. To pivot a little bit, you mentioned earlier that you are a board member of the American College of Emergency Physicians, also known as ASAP. Talk about what that position means and talk about the process as far as being elected um, to that position and what that means as it relates to being the first African-American female to be in your position? Well, I mean, again, it's, it's a huge pleasure. Uh, it was a big decision to make to even run for the board uh, because it is um, an undertaking that requires quite a commitment. Uh, organized medicine is a culture in and of itself. And when I say organized medicine, I'm referring to uh, organizations such as the American Medical Association, ASEP, American Psychiatric Association, um, the American Heart Association, those individuals that lead those organizations are essentially volunteers in a lot of ways. This is not a paid position. Um, and it requires really a commitment in terms of your time, but also a commitment to the mission of the organization. You have to really believe in it. Um, because if you didn't, you certainly wouldn't be willing to sacrifice what it takes um, to, to do well in that position. So, you know, for me, I've been involved with organized medicine since I was a resident. As I mentioned, when I was president of EMRA, which is a national organization as well for just residents, um, that's a, a form of organized medicine. And there's certainly a culture within organized medicine. There's a culture of board work. There's a culture of um, that type of work. And I think it's helpful when you're almost born into it and raised in it, and I was. Um, when I got to the point of considering uh, running for ASAP Board of Directors after you know talking with my family and making sure that it would work for us in terms of the commitment and sacrifice required, um, I I felt that you know truly I was the best person for the job. Um, otherwise, I wouldn't have run. And, um, you know, I wanted to not just represent people of color and women and, and underserved populations, um, but, but I, I wanted to represent everyone, really. Um, but I wanted to um, also um, make it clear that um, it's important to have a seat at the table for everyone, that everyone's voice is heard. Um, and has a seat at the table when it comes to these important advocacy decisions that ASEP makes. So in terms of what we do at ASEP, uh, we essentially um, govern the specialty of emergency medicine in terms of all of the clinical policies that guide our, our practice in the emergency department and how we take care of patients, um, not just our clinical policies, but also our legislative policies. Um, ASEP has an office in uh, Dallas, Texas, as well as an office in Washington, D.C., and our D.C. office spends a lot of time on the Hill lobbying for various um, pieces of legislation relative to emergency medicine and emergency care, telehealth, access to care, um, making sure that there is adequate reimbursement even uh, so that care can be provided adequately in the emergency department, making sure that there are um, adequate guardrails up to ensure the mental, the mental health 
the mental health of emergency physicians is, is paramount as well. And, and we've seen, for example, during COVID-19 that, um, you know, burnout is uh, an increasing problem amongst the physicians. And so uh, COVID has not been very helpful in terms of burnout. Uh, it's obviously been a really stressful situation. Unfortunately, in April, emergency medicine actually lost one of our physicians to suicide, uh, Dr. Lorna Breen, who was a practicing physician in New York and taking care of a lot of COVID patients and contracted COVID herself, uh, recovered from the virus, and then really dealt with a battle around uh, depression and anxiety, uh, and it ended up taking her life. And the reality is that 400 physicians every year attempt suicide, um, and burnout is really a major problem, particularly within the specialty of emergency medicine. We rank in the top five of specialties in terms of rates of burnout. And so that's just one example of what ASEP does in terms of championing a topic uh, relative to advocacy and policy and legislation to make sure that emergency physicians are well taken care of so that we can then take care of our patients well. So you mentioned burnout. That's, that, that is an interesting stat that you just dropped. Um, that's very concerning. I know there's other individuals who work in other industries that suffer from burnout. However, some of those industries are not responsible for the care of an individual or the life. So that's, that's very, very concerning. I'm thinking selfishly for a second. As, as a patient, being cared for by a doctor who could possibly be suffering from burnout, I would imagine that is that interjects a whole set of risks. Yeah. I mean, that's why it's so important that one, we just recognize that physicians are humans too, right? And so we have our own humanity. Um, and that the fact that one in two physicians experience burnout at some point during their career tells me that the issue isn't an individual level problem. It's too common to be based on being worked too hard or having too much debt or not being able to cope adequately. There are system problems um, with how we deliver care and the environment within which we work that need to be optimized to ensure that physicians are able to be well. And um, you know, you talk about its effect on patients, that is significant. And that's why it's all the more important to address these systems issues to make sure that burnout rates go down and that, quite frankly, if a physician is suffering from um, mental health struggles, they feel comfortable coming forward and seeking help for it. Um, a part, of, a big part of the problem is the stigma attached to it, and um, you know this thought that, oh, well, I'm a physician and I'm strong and I should be able to get through this. Why am I? Why am I struggling? Um, it's just, it's not about necessarily that person as an individual. A lot of it, again, stems from systematic issues in the environment in which we work, um, which needs to be addressed and made better so that, again, we can take better care of our patients. To that point, as a patient, are there things I can look for in a doctor to identify if they may be suffering from burnout? Um, and again, this, this sounds very selfish, but I want my doctor fresh yeah. and, and relaxed and rested as much as possible when she has my care or one of my loved one's care in his or her hands. Um, so just to kind of further educate the audience on burnout, are there signs, are there indicators that a patient could look for if they, um, when they're dealing with their physician or an emergency physician, mm -hmm. um, they can look for when they're dealing with their doctor? Yeah, no, it's an outstanding question. And I'd say, first of all, that burnout is really associated with a lack of pleasure, a lack of meaning, and a lack of engagement. So when someone begins to consistently, over time, not feel like they're engaged in what they're doing, in the work that they're doing, not feel like there's meaning behind what they're spending their time doing at work and feel that they're not getting the pleasure out of it that they used to, they're headed for burnout um, until they kind of recognize it and figure out how to address it. And so generally speaking, if you're being seen by a physician 
who seems disengaged, who seems like they're not having a good time, like there's no pleasure there at all, um, who seems to lack meaning and, and lack a joy for what they're doing, that could be a sign that they are suffering from, burn, from burnout. Um, also, if you find that they're a bit short with you and um, unwilling or uh, to address your questions uh, adequately, uh, that could be a sign that, again, they are lacking pleasure in doing their job because a big part of being a physician is educating. And a lot of that requires explaining things. It's just a part of the job. Doctors are educators. Uh, and so that could also be a sign that there is a problem. Um, and, you know, generally speaking, I think that, um, you know, patients need to be their own advocate. So the point that you bring up is very well taken. At the end of the day, everybody deserves um, a physician and a provider who is fully engaged with their care, who is competent and fully present. And uh, so I think that it's very important that physicians are mindful of who they engage with, in to, with for their care uh, to make sure that, that they will get the best care possible. But those are some of the signs that you might look for uh, to see if a physician is suffering from burnout. Um, and, you know, honestly, again, it's not a crime to necessarily be burned out, um, but it is a problem when it's not recognized and then addressed, particularly if it comes at the expense of your patient. I hear that you have a nonprofit that you founded. Give us a quick summary of the nonprofit and sort of this mission. And if you don't mind, if, if there's opportunities for individuals to find out more about your nonprofit via website or, or whatnot. In 2006, um, I actually founded a 501c3 nonprofit organization. It's named the Minority Women in Science Foundation. Um, and it really exemplifies one of my biggest joys and purposes in life, and that is around mentoring. Um, as I mentioned earlier, I'm the first physician in my family, and when you're the only one in the family to kind of go down a particular professional road, you learn a lot, and you may make some mistakes, and you may lack some of the guidance and mentorship um, that could have prevented you from uh, making some mistakes and, and, and having to kind of get through harder in a way that's hard than harder than necessary. So for me, the creation of the foundation was really important to make sure that young women um, have some mentorship and some guidance around future careers in not just medicine, but science in general. Um, and so this organization seeks to provide tangible resources as well as networking opportunity uh, to young women who are interested in going into science fields. Um, we are proud to say that over the years, we've probably given out about $700,000 or so in scholarships. Um, we focused recently on scholarships for um, SAT and N MCAT prep courses. So what I find is that, you know, one of the necessities to getting in the door is to do well with test taking um, and right or wrong that's where we are and unfortunately uh, some minority women and men obviously for that matter un from underserved um, populations don't take advantage of prep courses for some of these tests that are so important and vital to do well on and so of late, the foundation has focused on grants and scholarships specifically for prep courses for SAT as well as MCAT. MCAT is the test required to get into medical school. Um, and that has actually been really, really fruitful in terms of, again, assisting these young people with at least getting in the door and then hopefully the scholarships can keep them there. Uh, so at the very least, they don't have to worry about all of the finances associated with pursuing their dreams. And so the motto of the foundation is empowering future breakthroughs, uh, which has a little bit of a scientific type technical feel to it. But essentially, that is the goal to empower young women um, to really change the world. So when you're not tending to patients in the ER, when you're not running your own nonprofit, when you're not sitting on the board, you're also a professor? 
I am also a professor, so I'm associate professor of emergency medicine and health policy at George Washington School of Medicine and the George Washington Milken Institute of Public Health. So um, in that capacity, I teach a professional development course as well as a clinical public health course and a clinical reasoning course at the School of Medicine for, for medical students, so three different classes. Um, and then, as I said, I also once a month run a journal club session for our health policy fellows. These are physicians who are out working clinically. They're young physicians typically who want to learn more about health policy. Um, and so, yeah, I do the teaching thing too, uh, which I love. You know, the thing is, obviously, I wear a lot of hats. Um, but I can say that regardless of my energy level or how much sleep I have or have not gotten, when I teach, it energizes me. It brings me joy. And that, that's how you know what your joy is. Your joy is whatever that thing is that turns you on regardless of how you're feeling physically. Um, and so I, I appreciate that and, and hope to always include teaching in what I do. But then, Dr. Terry, I guess when you're not getting your four hours of sleep, found the time to, to publish? Yeah, so, you know, when you're in a professor and when you're in academic medicine, meaning that you teach, you do research and the like, you're actually required to, to publish. You're required, in order to gain that title of professor, you actually have to have some publications under your belt. You have to do some research. And typically, you know, the role of doing research is to not just do the research, but to publish it so that you can let the whole world know what you discovered. Um, so, yeah, I have, you know, several publications. Um, and I'd say, you know, it's interesting this year with COVID and the social distancing and quarantining, I've had more time at home. So I've done more writing than ever. And so I'd say this year alone, I've probably had so far three publications and um, a couple are in the works. Keeping my professional career diverse is what maintains, again, that meaning, that engagement uh, and that pleasure for me. And so I like to keep it diverse in terms of what I do. And uh, so far it's worked for me. So let's pivot to COVID. So I guess we are, what, six, seven months into the United States and COVID-19. And over the last several months, we have had shut-ins and we've had a lot of information, misinformation as it relates to COVID. I think CNN on a daily basis uh, will reflect the stats across the nation as far as new cases and deaths and all of those things. Um, so what has captured my attention over the last several months is COVID-19 and the effects that it's having, not only on America, but also on African-American community. And through social media, um, through word of mouth, you know, I've, I've recognized there's a lot of information being circulated um, amongst individuals in our community. And part of why I wanted to have you on the podcast is to kind of help talk about some of the facts and, and kind of debunk some of the myths that we're hearing out there from a medical perspective. Before we get into that, um, can we just kind of talk about the basics as far as what is COVID? And then after talking about what it is, and we can kind of go from um, testing and the different types of tests of whatnot. Absolutely. So, so COVID-19 uh, is in many ways an acronym for Coronavirus ID-19. So coronavirus uh, is a type of virus, just like rhinovirus and echovirus. There are all kinds of different types of viruses um, that cause infection. Uh, we most typically think of a virus causing the common cold. So coronavirus itself has not, is not a new thing. It's not novel. I've diagnosed coronavirus in patients for my entire career. Um, the difference between COVID-19 and other coronaviruses is that it's the first time that we've seen this particular type of coronavirus. And so the ID-19 comes in uh, from the fact that it was discovered in the year 2019 um, in China. We believe that to be the case so far. Um, so COVID-19 is an RNA-based um, virus. And, you know, the difference between a virus and a bacteria and a fungus and the like 
uh, is really just um, their shape and their form and how they are formed in a from a molecular standpoint. Um, you know, we have antibiotics to treat bacteria um, and to really cure bacteria. Some, ba some antibiotics actually cure bacterial infections, like for example, strep throat, streptococcal uh, pneumonia is a type of bacteria. Uh, penicillin has been, uh, for the most part, effective in treating strep throat. Um, but viruses, on the other hand, are not um, curable to date. We don't have any medication to date that actually kills or completely cures viral illnesses. And so instead, we have to let those viruses kind of run their course and we treat supportively, which means we treat whatever the symptoms are. And so if a virus causes a fever, we give Tylenol or we give ibuprofen to treat the fever. Um, if it's causing muscle aches and whatnot, we might give pain medication. If it's causing nausea and vomiting, then we might give what we call an anti-emetic or an anti-nausea medication to control the vomiting. And, we, and it tends to kind of run its course. And, and for the most part, folks are okay. Uh, the difference with COVID-19 and other viruses is that it, it, it is, it's been far more virulent, virulent meaning causing more morbidity or illness and also more death than other viruses. Um, and the other thing about it is that in addition to it being more virulent, which means, you know, more problematic in terms of your health and your life um, and your potential survival, uh, it also is more infectious. And so it's easier to contract this virus uh, compared to other viruses. Um, this virus is not meant to be a host in a human being either, right? And so it's uh, what we understand about it so far is that COVID-19 um, has, been, has been infecting animals, um, non-human animals, um, previously. Um, but this is the first time we think that it has really mutated to a form that allows it to live within a human being host. And so COVID-19 is novel, i.e. new to us. Um, and that's what all the ruckus is about. <laughs> We're trying to figure out how to, first of all, understand the pathophysiology around the virus itself, and then understand who it infects, why it affects who, how to treat it adequately, how to eradicate it, how to prevent its transmission, uh, and the like. So that's really COVID-19 in a nutshell. We say that what's unique about COVID is that it's more infectious and then you also said it's more deadly than other viruses. Um, is, is that part of the fact that it's new to us and by us, I'm assuming you mean humans? Um, is that part of why it is more deadly or why it is more infectious because it's something that's new being introduced into our environment or into humans? Can you kind of help unpack that a little bit more? Well, I wanna, I wanna be a little careful here. I will say it's definitely more infectious and I'd say it's more virulent, meaning that it can cause you to become more ill. I'm not sure yet if it's across the board more deadly. Uh, we know for sure that it disproportionately affects some populations and, it, and that, for example, African-Americans um, have a definite increased rate of death from COVID-19 um, but overall, it's, it's certainly more infectious, it's more virulent, um, but who it harms the most in terms of potential death, uh, we're still, you know, sorting out in terms of what those risk factors are. Uh, we certainly know that folks who have uh, underlying comorbidities or illnesses, such as hypertension and diabetes, people who are immunocompromised, um, don't fare as well. The elderly, for example, don't fare as well. Um, but you know, when you look at COVID-19 compared to, let's say, regular flu or influenza, um, there at one point had been, you know, as many deaths, if you will, from flu, particularly before there was a vaccine for the flu. Um, but the thing about COVID is that it continues to spread. It's very infectious. It's very easy to catch. Um, and for some, it is extremely deadly. From your opinion, how close do you think we are to finding 
a vaccine here in the United States? You know, it's a, it's really interesting topic. Um, I don't think we're there yet. The process for developing a vaccine is a very long one. This is not the first vaccine that the world has had to create. So we have some experience when it comes to creating vaccines. And typically the process of creating and then manufacturing and then administering a vaccine can take, you know, at least 12 to 18 months. And 12 months is actually thought to be pretty, you know, ambitious in terms of how likely it is to actually take that long. There have, has to be at least three phases of the trials for vaccine development. And the first phase is administered to a small number of people to see how they react to it. And the second phase is administered to a larger group of individuals who are especially at risk for contracting that particular disease. And in the third phase is administered to thousands, sometimes millions of people to test it long term to see what its effects might be on that population. In medicine, you know, we, we can't distribute a medication or a vaccine and, and make it FDA approved until we know that it won't harm the masses. And so even if it's okay amongst a thousand people, that's not enough. It has to be um, tested in terms of its efficacy and well, as well as its safety amongst, you know, maybe millions of people. And so that's why it takes so long, because even after you administer it, you have to follow those individuals for several months to maybe years to see how it actually affects them potentially long term. And there have been examples in our history of vaccines gone bad. And so there's a reason to have a healthy respect around the development of a vaccine in the right way. So, for example, in 1976, with swine flu, there was a vaccine developed, and it turned out that that year, swine flu was actually milder than they thought it was going to be, and the people who got that vaccine ended up with a nerve disorder. And in 2009, with H1N1, there was a vaccine distributed in Europe, and many of those individuals who got that vaccine developed a, a sleep condition called narcolepsy, right? And so in medicine, the key is first, do no harm. And so with a vaccine, you're talking about administering really a medication, if you will, to healthy people. So they walk through the door normal and healthy with no problems. So to create potentially problems for that individual, uh, because the, the safety and the efficacy of the vaccine hasn't been properly vetted, is inappropriate. And that's doing harm. That's creating a problem for folks who otherwise would have been fine. Um, and the other thing about the vaccine discussion is that, you know, there are a lot of individuals who generally just don't believe in vaccines in the first place. There, there's a population of individuals who are anti-vacciners, if you will. Um, and so if we don't get this right, you know, if we create this vaccine too hastily and it ends up going wrong, we end up doing more harm than good, you know, it's going to be ammunition for uh, some individuals to further question, really, the efficacy and safety of vaccines in the first place. And we know from the recent measles epidemic here in the United States uh, that largely resulted from parents refusing to get their, their children vaccinated against measles, um, that that can have really detrimental effects. So this has to be handled carefully. Dr. Terry, you mentioned African-Americans are disproportionately affected by COVID. Why is that? What's driving that? Is it behaviors? Is it the pre-condition, pre-existing conditions that um, many in our community may have? Is it the, is it socioeconomical? Is it, is it lack of health care? Kind of um, shed some light on that. Well, I mean, first of all, it's a really important topic. Um, and I think, I, I really appreciate the fact that throughout all of the discourse that we've had this year around COVID-19, that issue around the disproportionate effects on people of color and more specifically black people um, has been a narrative that we continue to talk about. 
COVID-19 has really magnified health disparities in this country that have been an issue well before COVID-19, um, but it has been, again, magnified and a big bright light has been shown on those disparities to the extent that we can't ignore it. The fact of the matter is that throughout the United States, in multiple cities, multiple states, we are seeing up to 80% of COVID deaths amongst African Americans. Uh, we are seeing in some instances overall in the country, about 22% of COVID deaths are amongst African Americans, but we know that African Americans only make up about 12% of the overall population in the United States. And so the question obviously becomes, you know, why is this happening? You know, even in Washington, D.C., uh, which is where I reside and, and it is, you know, divided by, by wards, wards seven and eight, uh, which are about 97% Black or African-American, have seen upward to 85% rates of infection compared to all of the other wards in Washington, D.C. And so there is a clear difference, there's a clear problem, and there's a clear opportunity, really, to intervene. You ask why, and I think that that's really important so that we can fix it. Um, and the, the answer is really multifactorial, as you alluded to. You know, a lot of folks talk about how there are increased underlying conditions and comorbidities in terms of illnesses amongst African Americans, and that's absolutely true. We actually suffer from higher rates of hypertension and diabetes uh, relative to other races. And we know that COVID-19 has a field day with individuals who have underlying comorbidities such as hypertension and diabetes. We also have a higher risk of stroke. We also have a higher risk of myocardial infarction or heart attack as well. But in addition to that disparity, which obviously needs to be addressed to fix that. Like we need to get healthy um, as a race of people. We need not just to get healthy for the sake of saying it, but there needs to be support and policy and regulation and resources available to ensure that there's adequate uh, access to care and adequate access to information and education and adequate access to the ability to eat well um, and, and, and exercise in all communities and certainly in underserved communities. Uh, but in addition to that, we know that there is also an access issue. So even if you are healthy, if you will, and you don't have an underlying uh, condition like hypertension or diabetes, we know that where you live, your zip code uh, affects your access to care. So if you do happen to catch COVID and you happen to not have an underlying condition, you still may not do well if you don't have access to primary care, if you don't have access to a hospital wherein you can get the care that you need in a timely fashion. Um, and even again, here in Washington, D.C., it's interesting because D.C. is split by a river called the Anacostia River, and the disparities south of the river um, in southeast D.C. are stark in terms of access to care, in terms of number of hospitals, in terms of primary care providers, in terms of resources. Um, there's essentially one hospital south of the river uh, in D.C., whereas north of the river, there, there are a handful more. And so without a doubt, access to care also is a huge limitation in terms of being able to do well if you happen to contract uh, this disease. We also know that generally speaking, uh, underrepresented groups or minority populations tend to live in generational households. So actually a quarter of all Black, Latino, as well as Asian households are multi-generational, meaning that there may be children, uh, the parent, the grandparent, kind of all living under one roof. And what we know about COVID-19 is that it loves company. And so it loves places where there are a lot of people. And it also loves to infect children uh, in a way that's unsuspected. So children often contract COVID-19. We know for a 
without a doubt, they certainly can track COVID-19. I was reading, I think, today that um, there have been, I think, over 100,000 cases in kids. Um, and because it tends to have very mild effects on children, they're walking around potentially spreading it. And if you live in a multi-generational household with grandma, for example, um, and you know their grandchild is there as well, um, well, you can see how that could be a setup uh, for failure such that before you know it, perhaps the entire household has contracted COVID-19, uh, which can be a huge problem. We also know that Again, COVID-19 likes small spaces with a lot of people. So if you happen to live in an area where there's not a grocery store, uh, but instead you have to do your shopping, for example, at a convenience store, it's kind of hard to stand six feet apart um, at the 7-Eleven, or it's kind of hard to stand six feet apart at a smaller space um, to do your shopping. And we know that in underserved communities, there tends to be less access to grocery stores and the like. Um, so again, it's just, it's another setup uh, for potential failure. Um, and then we also know that there are several circulating conspiracy theories and, and myths within uh, the Black community and other communities of color. Um, and those conspiracy theories and myths um, sometimes prevent individuals from seeking care um, sooner. Than, I mean, they may have sought it sooner if they didn't believe in these conspiracy theories and myths. Um, and it, it generally also just creates some distrust amongst people of color when you think about all of the past historical indiscretions uh, within the United States when it comes to healthcare. And that's a fact, no doubt about it. There have been major indiscretions uh, within this country against people of color uh, relative to healthcare. And people haven't forgotten that. And so generally that distrust translates sometimes into not believing your physician, not believing the warnings and not seeking the care when you need it. And then I'd say just finally, the role of bias is certainly a likely cause of um, worse outcomes for people of color. We know for a fact that there is research that links poor outcomes to clinical bias. Um, and we, we're talking about implicit bias for the most part, uh, wherein physicians and other healthcare providers may not even realize um, that they are having biases against people of color. And we know for a fact, study after study has shown that people of, co of color are not receiving adequate pain medication because of bias. People of color are being uh, inappropriately diagnosed with, for example, schizophrenia uh, based on race and, and bias. And so I think there are so many um, potential causes here as to why COVID-19 is really running rampant in um, populations of color. And, and bias, again, is one of them because it could be that you know, there is a hesitation to diagnose um, people of color with COVID-19 based on bias or to, to treat them properly based on bias. So bias is something that we all have, first of all. Um, bias is a physiologic defense that human beings have. Uh, it's actually based on the amygdala, which is a part of the brain, and the frontal cortex of the brain. That's where it comes from. This is physiologic, it's real. Um, and it's meant to actually serve as well as a protection, really. Um, and a lot of bias, again, is implicit. We know from studies that implicit bias, which is the same as unconscious bias, is more common than explicit bias or conscious bias. Um, and that's actually helpful because it tells me that um, you know, for the most part, people actually mean well, and for the most part, a lot, some of our biases are, we're not aware of it. But once you are aware of it, there's an opportunity to address it. So in clinical practice, again, um, if you are used to recognizing a particular pattern and associating that pattern with a particular behavior or outcome, there are assumptions uh, that are made every day in clinical practice that then influence your decision-making in terms of how you take care of patients. And that's bias. 
And we know for a fact, again, that there are biases related to, to race and, and the color of individual skin, and, and then how the physician or nurse or technician or whoever that's involved treats that patient, how they, how they decide to take care of them. How would you advise someone like myself who I'm relatively aware about my health care. I'm relatively aware of what should happen when I visit my physician or my during my annual examination. Um, I'm not one who's been to an emergency room, <laughs> so I don't necessarily have an appreciation for that process and how it works. But what are some tips or what are some things that you would give a patient who may visit an emergency room in the future or who frequently visit an emergency room based off of their health situation to combat the biases that are, what I'm hearing, implicit as far as the health system is concerned? Great question again. You know, I think, first of all, it's, it's really important to understand that, that you are your biggest advocate, that no one really cares about you like you care about you. <laughs> no one, not even your doctor. And so, well, maybe your mom, but for the most part, no one cares about you like you care about you. So to invest the time into understanding your health, your health care, the medications you're on or you might need to be on is worth it. So in general, first of all, it is so important that we approach health care and go to the doctor and go to seek whenever we go to seek care well-informed, first of all, about ourselves. So if I ask you, who is your doctor? You should have a name for me. <laughs> also, we need to understand primary care should not be optional. <laughs> primary care is required. It's important to have a primary care physician, even if you're well. I can't tell you how many times I've had patients tell me, well, I, I don't get sick. I'm not sick. I don't need a doctor. Well, you do if you want to remain well. And so this is important. You need a primary care doctor to stay out of the emergency department, perhaps, right? And so for me, I see a patient who comes into the emergency department with a blood pressure of, let's say, 210 or 120. That's super duper high. And they end up having a stroke, maybe, because that blood pressure is so high and the pressure in the brain is just too much and there may be bleeding. And that's obviously very much life-threatening. Well, perhaps that could have been prevented if they had gone to see a primary care doctor a year ago to even find out that they had hypertension. We call hypertension the silent killer, meaning you feel fine. You're walking around thinking it's all good and your blood pressure is through the roof. And before you know it, you're like, why can't I talk anymore? That's called a stroke. And so, you know, I think that first of all, we have to prioritize and understand the importance of having a primary care physician and seeing them regularly. It's also important that we understand what health conditions we have. If you have hypertension, if you have diabetes, know it, say it, be able to name that. And also know what medications you're on, know the dosages. If you can't, you know, memorize it, write it down, it's fine, but have it with you and be able to uh, provide that information if you need to. I cannot tell you how many patients I've seen who I examine them, check their abdomen, and I see a huge surgical scar. I'm like, so what happened here? What, why, why do you have this big surgical scar on your belly? And they're like, I don't know. If someone cuts you open, please know why. Please be able to explain what happened in that operating room. Um, and so again, first of all, be your own advocate, know your stuff, know your medical condition. And I think that when you come to the table with that information, as an engaged par participant in your healthcare, it's gonna make the whole interaction with your physician go better. Um, when we know that the, the, the patient is interested in their own healthcare and engaged in their own healthcare, um, we tend to uh, be you know, uh, impressed with that. And, and it's like, well, if you care, if you don't care, you know, hmm. But if I see that you care, then certainly, um, I'm going to do well, maybe above and beyond to make sure that, that, that you're well. And so I think that's really important. Ask questions, 
always know that you can ask any question that you want. It is your right to question your physician. It's a service literally that you're paying for. <laughs> and so, you know, sometimes individuals, patients are, are bashful about asking questions of their doctor and like, oh, they don't have time. I don't want to bother them. You are paying for a service. Um, and so you deserve to have those questions answered and then read for yourself um, to learn more about the conditions that you have. You know, in the age of Google and the internet, we can learn and figure out pretty much, you know, anything that we want um, at, just with the click of the mouse. That's a uh, so, uh, mm-hmm. what is a what information sources would you consider to be replicable? Because the internet age, I think it it's there's pros and cons to that, right? There's so much information. I would yeah. I think people probably struggle with what is a site that has information that I should take in and what are some sites or what are some places that maybe, you know, isn't good information. I would think a CDC site would probably have good information. I know there's other things out there that's similar. So can you provide some places to where there's good information as it relates to health sources? Absolutely. So I think that um, government-based uh, resources online, as you alluded to, are going to be reliable. So the CDC, HRSA, ARC, um, Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services uh, are all government-based health agencies uh, that tend to put out very reliable information. Um, also, there's this thing called think tanks or health think tanks, and these are organizations as well that tend to be private, not government-based, um, that also tend to hire um, you know, scholars and researchers that produce research that is, is quite reliable um, and the like. So, for example, um, American um, Enterprise Institute is a, a really reputable, uh, more conservative think tank out of D.C., um, and the Urban Institute is a, is a more liberal, if you will, um, think tank in, out of D.C. as well. And so those resources might be helpful um, on, in terms of online. But I think ultimately, you know, you have a physician for a reason. I'm not saying that you have to do all the research on your own and, and figure it all out on your own. Look up some stuff, bring it to your physician, discuss it with your physician. This is where, again, having a good primary care doc who you have a good relationship with is really important because there's not the time for that in the emergency department, right? Because the emergency department is for emergencies. And so in that moment, we're focusing on that specific emergency. Um, But you certainly should feel comfortable going to your primary care doctor and discussing what you see online to see what their opinion is about it um, and to kind of dig through it in that way. We base a lot of our management on research and research papers. And we're trained to be able to read those papers and to interpret them. So for example, a lot of talk about hydroxychloroquine. Um, You know, I've actually personally read the research papers on that topic and it's not meant to be really understood, if you will, by lay people, uh, because it's a, it's a study, it's an area of study all in its own research and evidence-based medicine and cohort studies and the like, but we are trained to understand that stuff. So bring those papers to your doctor and, and have a discussion about it. So historically, I have frequently visited WebMD as my site to provide what I'll say is a fundamental understanding of a symptom, if you will. Um, I try not to be a Google doctor and I try not to allow the internet to diagnose things that a real physician should diagnose. However, are sites like a WebMD, is that replicable? Is that something that is at least a good place to get some information to your point to where you go visit your doctor, you at least have something that will um, provided you some insight as far as symptoms that you may have. My sense is that WebMD does a good job of being reputable and reliable. I think the bottom line kind of boils down to whatever source you're going to use, check it out. So for example, if you see someone online preaching 
uh, around a topic or um, promoting a particular issue, look into seeing who that person is and checking the credentials of that individual to see if they have, you know, the background and the experience to even have that discussion on that particular topic. So always question the source of information and do some research around, you know, Google names, like who is this person talking about this topic and um, are they reputable or not? What is their background? What is their experience? And similarly, when you go online and you read uh, different pieces of information, there should always be a set of references or resources at the bottom uh, of the page that lists background information that you can go to and kind of double check what was in the, the context, you know, of the article, for example. And so check the source, um, you know, always have a critical approach really to um, the literature. We call it critical appraisal in medicine. Um, so we always look at papers and articles and the like pretty critically. Um, and, you know, it's kind of like you have to prove to me that you are credible before I just believe that you are credible. So that means me doing a little digging to ensure that the source is reputable. To that point, Dr. Terry, how do you find a good doctor? Something I've struggled with all of my adult life is not only finding a physician that I feel comfortable with, but finding a physician that I feel like is going to provide the care that is thorough and in-depth to where I take comfort that my time spent with my physician was well worth it. So for my audience, what steps would you recommend one take to identify a good doctor? And then second, what are some things one should evaluate and determine if they should maintain or keep the doctor that they currently have? Mm -hmm. Well, again, you're your biggest advocate. So at the end of the day, you need to be very much satisfied with your physician. You're going to share with that individual a lot of intimate details about yourself. And it's so important that there's a rapport developed um, that results in your best well-being. And so first of all, it's super important. Um, I think that word of mouth is one way to find a good doctor. So just talking to your friends and talking to your friends' friends and finding out kind of who they go see. Um, certainly, there are some search engines online that can uh, direct you to a particular physician. Um, and the thing about it is, if you find a doc online or even by word of mouth, someone recommends a doc, that doesn't mean you have to make that your doctor forever. Uh, most physicians allow for a consultation, like a visit, like check me out, see if you like me or not, let's chat, let's date a little bit. Um, before you actually commit to making them your, you know, final and only primary care physician. And so I, I think the other piece is that some folks feel um, once they go see a doctor, they're obligated to continue to go see that doctor. And that's just not true. Again, look at healthcare as a service that you're paying for. And so if you're not satisfied with the product, then, you know, you should seek other means to, to, to your satisfaction. But I think word of mouth is one way. Certainly there are online vehicles to finding docs. Um, if you know you're looking for a particular type of physician with a particular type of demographic background, for example, maybe you want a female doc, maybe you want a doc of color, um, or maybe you want a doctor in a certain city. Uh, then there are ways to also kind of narrow down that filter and find, you know, who you're looking for um, and being very specific uh, when you're asking around um, for physicians, um, I think is really helpful. But yeah, it can be a challenge. And when, when you do find that good fit, keep it. Because <laughs> uh, finding a good fit and, and great rapport um, with, with a doc is, it can be quite unique. Um, but it is very important. I think on a bigger scale, we need more doctors of color. Um, because if we, again, had more doctors of color, research has shown us that patients of color are more satisfied, outcomes are better. Um, we would have, uh, you know, more physicians in underserved areas like Southeast DC, like I mentioned. And so that's part of why my foundation is so important to me because it, it seeks to promote a bigger solution to all of this issue in terms of finding a good doc um, that can relate 
to and ensure really good outcomes, particularly for people of color. So we need more diversity. For those individuals who don't have the network, do you think websites such as healthgrades.com is a good source to, again, identify maybe based off of those filters, someone that you're looking for? And I'm thinking individuals who may just move into the city, first job out of school, and the network is something that they're going to build over time. But for the individual who it's all new to them, right? New job, new city, and they're kind of trying to learn their way around a place. Um, is, is a site like that a, a good starting point? Or Yelp, you know, as millennials will probably, um, they Yelp everything as far as where to eat, where to go. Is that also a place that you could use to identify a doctor in your opinion? Yep, I think all of the, the online search engines are useful um, to check out. I think also if you are in a city wherein there's a university hospital, um, so for example, George Washington University Hospital, Duke University Hospital, um, Johns Hopkins University Hospital, um, starting at an academic center to find your physician uh, might serve you well. One, because there tends to be a, a good variety of choices in academic centers. Um, and uh, so, so I would say that if you happen to be in a city where there is a, a university hospital, that maybe starting there and, and looking up some sources for physicians and that way might be helpful. And then just remember, you know, I've, I've thrown around the, the phrase primary care a few times. When I say primary care, I mean internal medicine or family medicine. And so these are specialties of medicine. And so you're looking specifically for an internal medicine doctor or a family medicine doctor um, as your primary care. Now for women, um, OBGYN can also serve as primary care. Um, so just knowing a little bit of that, that nuance might be helpful even in terms of your searches online.